We have been looking at the book of Ephesians, so if you'll turn there, I do appreciate your, uh, your patience as we are uh, dealing with some uh, technical issues, computer issues it sounds like, uh, appreciate your patience there. We have been moving our way through this book, book of Ephesians, and uh, we are going at a snail's pace, some would say, but we're... We want, to, we want to pull out what this book has to say. We can just lift the theology out of the book and just teach the theology. But that is not my job. My job is to teach the Word. The theology will flow out of the book. We don't want to just teach the theology. We want to teach the book. The book is what it will change our lives. It is God's method by which He changes our heart. And so we want to stick closely to the book, this word, this Bible, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Asia Minor, a larger church being Ephesus, but the idea was it was to be circulated. And we have, um, we have found many different themes, but the underlying theology behind the book, the first three chapters we've seen, is the the power of God. God is keeping His promise. Christ is keeping His promise that He will build His church, and He will, uh, uh, and He is carrying that out. And that's what we see. And so we see the major theme in Ephesus, Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, is the the doctrine and duty of the church. It's concerning the church. Now. We will be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter. That's a large section. Actually, we looked at those first two, three verses last week. So it would be 14 to the end of the chapter. But from 11 to the end of the chapter is one unit. It's really one section. And um, the first three verses, like I said, we looked at last week um, was somewhat a summary of what Paul is talking about in this section. And that summary being is that God is in the process of bringing Jew and Gentile together. And he has broken down those barriers. And he does that in a summary fashion. And he points out the the benefits that the Gentiles now have being in Christ and the disadvantages that they had. And that, again, points to the power of God at work in their life and what they now have. The next section from verses 14 to verse 18, this section is is talking about the theology of that element, that element of the church, of bringing Jew and Gentile together. And he lays that out. And then the next section, the last section, verses 19 to 22, we see see that uh, uh, he's giving us the reason for this. Why is he doing this? Why is he pulling Jew and Gentile together to have a representation here on this earth? And we can see the so then on, uh, in verse 19. So this section is talking about the church. In fact, this would be the core of the letter. This would be what Paul is getting at. The real heart of it. The real information of what Paul is wanting to communicate. And it's a major problem that man has. We don't come together. Now, out of necessity, we have found that need to come together. It's a, it's a little bit better when you can come together into a community, find a job, and we begin to trade. And, and um, there's, a, there's a, a common or a mutual benefit for men living together. Um, we've seen that necessity. And it's good for both parties to be able to work and receive the benefits of the work. And we can benefit the the whole, the greater good, the larger society. So it's a good thing to come together, but it doesn't take man long to, uh, when they are together, to have quarrels and fights and wars. And that's man's tendency. There just seems to be no harmony among man just doesn't seem to be able to happen. doesn't seem to be able to exist. No matter how much we educate, how much we, we push and try, man seems to have reason for war. And then it didn't take long from the Garden of Eden. You have two brothers and one killed the other. 
didn't take long for that conflict to happen. And you ask, well, what's the cause of war? Why, why does man keep fighting? And there's many causes, but the three big ones... And these are the three, one, three words that you, you never want to bring up because it's going to start a conflict. It's going, to start a, it's going to start a war. And that's religion. That's politics. And what? Money. Those are the three big causes of war. That's what, uh, that's what we're told. But really, when we look closely, um, sometimes wars arise over any reason. Just sheer hatred. Um, prejudice sometimes kings just want to conquer they want to they want to dominate other people um that's just just the way it is that's what man is there's a little quote here that i liked that i think uh, we need to keep in mind it says the root cause of strife discord antagonism enmity hate bitterness Fightings, war, conflict, and every other form of disunity and division is sin. Sin is the major reason. And the reason there is there's always perfect harmony and unity within the Godhead. Now think about that. There is perfect unity and peace within the Godhead, isn't there? Why is that so? Because there is a lack of sin. There is no sin in the in the Godhead. There's a harmony. In fact, it's perfect harmony within the Godhead. Now, there's natural barriers that man have. Sometimes it's language. Um, sometimes it's just not even language. It's just the dialect. Well, that he's speaking the same language, but it's a different dialect. I hear it differently. Sometimes it's race, the color of our skin. Sometimes it's geographical locations. You're on the other side of the track, therefore I can't have peace with you. There's conflict there. Sometimes it's culture. Sometimes it's as petty as appearance. Man does not lack for reasons to have wars and to have conflict. Now, there is a, there's a Greek word, xenos. And uh, this Greek word is, um, has uh, two meanings. The first meaning is stranger. And the second meaning is enemy. And the idea, the idea, if you're a stranger, you're automatically the enemy. And there was a lot of that tension. Uh, that creates a lot of tension. In fact, we get that word xenophobia. Uh, the fear of strangers from from that Greek word. And as long as sin is on the earth, though, man will have wars and rumors of wars, just like the Bible says. For the believer, though, for the believer, God calls us to peace. But to be able to have that peace is going to take supernatural power of God. And Paul addresses that in this section takes actually the power of God, but it's the, the blood of Christ, in fact, to pay for the penalty of sin and someday take care of that the presence of sin. And sin has to be eradicated then before man will live at peace. Now, take a look on the screen if we can pull it up there. There's a list. There's 17 uh, things on this list that have or 17 different wars that America has uh, been involved in. These are ones I just pulled off the internet. Before this list was even uh, on the charts, before 1775, there was, uh, there was skirmishes and conflicts and there was all sorts of... There was never peace. How can man accomplish peace? How can we do that? Even in the short history of America, there's been very little, very little peace. Um, we, have, uh, we have seen, though, the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension. We've seen the power of God at work on an individual basis in our life. 
We've seen the power of God beginning to pull together the church and establishing the church. Can God bring about peace within that church? <laughs> I believe he can. I believe he can. It's not without... It's, it, it's within the range of power that God has to be able to create peace within his church. But boy, sometimes we look out and we say, there's, there's just no hope for man. And without the power of God, that is certainly true. There is no hope for man. But we've seen that God can change a person. He can make a person spiritually alive. We've seen through the power of God, He can unify the brethren. He can unify people and create a body and create a church like we see today. But let me turn then to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 22. And let's read this passage and see what Paul has to say concerning this idea of peace and conflict and bringing people together. <clears throat> Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one group or into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall and by establishing in his flesh the enmity by abolishing, I'm sorry, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity or the hostility you might, your translation might have. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together is growing into a, a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are in whom you also are being built together into a, a dwelling of God in the spirit now what's the point what's Paul trying to get out here Let's focus in on that. This is the power of God. And remember, that's the underlying theology of this. It's God that is at work. In fact, if you would notice, um, the power has switched from God at work. Verse 10, starting verse 11 through the end of the chapter, it's now Christ at work. It's the power of Christ. It's what Christ has done. But it's still talking about that, that divine power that has taken place, and that is taking place among God's people. But the power of God brought about peace by establishing the Jewish, uh, I'm sorry, by abolishing the Jewish religion, religious system through the death of Christ and established a new institution which includes every race to reveal his presence among men. We also could say to do his work on the earth. Why is God doing this? To do his work on the earth and to real, reveal his presence among men. Now notice in verse 14, the very first statement is kind of a summary statement. For he himself is our peace. That's Christ Jesus. Without Christ there is no peace. It is impossible to have peace without Christ <clears throat> Let's take a look at the, what the Bible has to say about peace. Um, Christ is the only true source of peace, but this idea of peace is harmony, tranquility. Um, it's contained in the Old Testament word shalom, if you're aware of that or familiar with that term. And it means welfare or health. And it's a greeting in the Old Testament. It would be a greeting in the Old Testament times in the Hebrews. Uh, meaning just health to you, uh, prosperity to you, free from worry. That's kind of the idea. 
And actually, this is a peace, really, that the world cannot ever know apart from Christ. But Christ can give that peace. We are to preach that peace, and we are to live that peace. Look what the Bible says, though. Jesus is the the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So that peace, that, that tranquility of the, of the Trinity, Christ is saying, I give that to you. That harmony, that welfare, that, that tranquility. Look at the next one here on the screen. You'll see uh, when, we, when Christ sent out his 70, when he was uh, training his disciples and sent them out. Look at verse, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. It says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. It's, it's, it's that shalom. It's that greeting, peace be to this house. But look at verse 6. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if he, if he not, if not, it will return to you. Wow. So this, this peace, this, this blessing, this shalom that was to be given out is going to rest back on with, for what reason? Well, if the person was not in accord with what you were saying, if there was no unity there, if there was no, um, uh, if there was still hostility there, there was nothing that brought the person together, there's no common bond there, then that peace would be returned to you. And so, He says to say it. The first thing you say when you go into a house, peace. Look at the next thing. Some of Christ's last words to his disciples, he said, you you may have peace. In fact, let's turn over there to uh, John chapter 16. We won't turn too much today, but John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. In Christ, we can have peace. Now, that's a, that's a pretty strong statement. That's a pretty strong uh, idea, concept. Within these four walls, where the believers reside, or, or when we come to meet together, we can have peace. There can be unity. And it's because of Christ. And Christ says, my peace I, I leave with you. He says, I, I give you this peace. I look at the next one. The, the, the ministry of the, the uh, apostles' ministry is characterized as preaching peace through Jesus Christ. So it's not peace within just these four walls, but it, we have the message of peace. We go out and preach the gospel of peace. The Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, we see that the Holy Spirit gives peace. In fact, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. He produces peace within the believer's life. Love, joy, peace. God's kingdom is characterized by peace. Now, folks, this is a foreign word, peace. It was known in the Roman times, but it was a forced peace. A Pax Romana, you will have peace. And they enforced peace. But that was not a true peace. This is a peace that really overcomes our understanding, our peace that the world cannot understand. It, it, it's a supernatural peace. Uh, God's kingdom is characterized by peace. Look at the last statement there. And the God of peace calls his people to peace. We are to be peaceful people. What does that mean? Well, God has worked through his power. He has accomplished peace for the church. In fact, Paul gives us the details of how that is to be worked out or how that has worked out. He's given us the theology of that. And um, the question then that we have to ask is, what are the distinct deliberate acts of Christ? To bring about these peace. Now, that's what Paul answers here in this, in this text. Some distinct, specific, deliberate, intentional acts that Christ did to bring about these peace. Number one, he broke down the wall of petition. 
The wall of the wall that separates. That's a, a good translation. The wall that separates. There was a dividing wall that separates Jew and Gentile, and Christ broke it down through his work on the cross. The word broke down, it says in verse 14, um, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and both and broke down the wall. So there's two concepts there. He, he made the group, and we'll look at that concept in a minute. But first, he broke down this wall, this barrier, dividing wall. Dividing wall. Now, he could be talking... Uh, let me go back. This concept of broke down. It means to destroy, to ruin, to tear into little bits. Uh, the, the idea is that there is nothing now that separates. There's, it's abolished. It's gone. In fact, in Colossians 3, Paul, uh, Paul says, a renewal in which there is no distinction. There's no distinction there. It's not there anymore. Something that was there is not there. It used to be Jew and Gentile, but there's now no distinction. In fact, within, within the church, there should be no distinction of Jew, Gentile, man, woman, black, white, There's no distinction. In fact, man puts up those distinctions sometimes, but they're not recognized by God. They're not God-given distinctions. Those have been broken down. Look what else he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. No, a, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. It's Christ. He is the unifying factor within the church. Now, there is, there's a wall that Paul is talking about here. Paul anticipates this question, well, what kind of wall? Um, and so he goes into details of how Christ has done this. It says that it was, a, it was abolished in his flesh, this enmity, this hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. And there was a, there was a wall that he talks about. Later, uh, this, uh, this wall was taken care of by the death of Christ through his, his, uh, his body, his flesh. Earlier on, he mentions the, it was the blood of Christ. And it's, that's the idea. It's just that brokenness of Christ, of that death and this blood and broken body. That's why we have communion and remember those things. There's three elements to this wall, though. Is it, is it a metaphorical wall? Is, it, is Paul just talking about some metaphor, this idea, this concept of racism or nationalism, we may say, that, uh, that was there between the Jew and the Greeks, and now that, or the Jew and the Gentile, and that's been broken down? Well, yeah, it does seem to be that. Seems to be that in this element. Or is it a physical wall that was torn down? Well, there's probably that, too. Within the temple, there were sections of the temple that only people could go in certain times of the year. The Holy of Holy. One man, one time a year could go in. That's the, it was very exclusive. It would, there would be concentric circles then that would pull out a little bit. And the Jews were able to go into this other section. Not the Holy of Holies, but before that. Before the Holy of Holies. But then there was another section that the Gentiles were not even able to go into that. They had to stand out. And there was a wall that separated them. And on that wall, there was a message that was placed. And we found those placards. Um, uh, historians have and, and uh, geologists have found these placards. And they kind of go like this. If you are a Gentile, you are not permitted beyond this point by penalty of death. Now, I've seen some signs, do not trespass, or trespassers will be shot. And that's the idea. There is no compromise. You come across the border and you will be shot. Now, is Paul talking about that kind of wall? Well, yes, yeah, those walls have been broken down. There is no distinction in God's mind. There's no distinction now. There's no wall there. Jew, Gentile, equal. They can come into the temple. But there's also... A spiritual wall between man and God. And Paul addresses that as well. And he reconciled them both, in verse 16, in one body to God. 
So there was a reconciliation. He broke down that wall as well. So when, when sin can be uh, taken care of, when sin can be eradicated, and there can be a, a joining of man and God, then there can be unity. But sin had to be taken care of first. And that was the, that's the spiritual wall. You know what? I say all three walls are involved in what Paul is talking about here. The, the, meta, uh, the uh, metaphysical wall, this, this, this theoretical wall of racism or nationalism has been taken down. This physical wall has been taken down, representing the, the religious system of the Jews. And now this spiritual wall has been taken down. There's no distinctions. What a blessed place for Gentiles now to be in. There's no barrier between man and man because there's no now no barrier between God and man. And man can come together because of sin being taken care of. Now obviously, within the church, there's still going to be disunity. And it's primarily because of sin. Still because of sin. Look back at verse 15. Look what Paul... Uh, Christ has done by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. That's that hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. He abolished that. Which is the law of commandments uh, contained in ordinances. And that's talking about the law. What did Christ do to the law? Well, that law was fulfilled. He completely fulfilled that law. And by doing that, he eradicated that law. That law is not necessary anymore. Now, Paul is talking about primarily here, though, the, uh, probably the ceremonial law. That was abolished. There was, no other, there was no need for that. When the perfect lamb was sacrificed on that, uh, on that altar, there was no need for that sacrificial system anymore. So there was no need for, for the, the lambs, the sacrifices, the, the, the rituals, the ceremonies that had to take place because of that. And so that wall has been taken down or that obstacle has been taken down it was the the ceremonial law well do we have law today absolutely we do and that's the moral law the law that's written in on on our hearts that's the law that is has its root in the um, in the nature and character of god so there is that law it's a law of love if you will and that's the Bible. That's what the, the Bible talks about. There is no distinctions. Man can throw up some artificial distinctions. Well, he's not, uh, he's not the right shade of color. He doesn't speak with the right language. He doesn't have the right accent. He doesn't have this or that. We can, we can build up those walls, but Christ tore down those walls. And it is now Jew and Gentile together on equal footing before the Lord, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. New man. So he tore down the wall. And by way of application, let me just go back. By way of application, it seems to me that some people are, are continuously building up those walls, making those distinctions so strong, and, and, and putting up these barriers between people. How, does that, how is that done? Well, it's done by gossiping. It's done by splitting relationships, telling lies, and splitting the church, bringing disharmony in the church. And that should never be. should never be within the body of Christ. You're, you're splitting the body. And that can't be done. And Christ broke down those walls. We should, we as men, should never... Never build those walls back up. Notice what else Christ did is he created a new institution. He created a new institution. Verses 15 to 18, 15b, so that in himself he, uh, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And there's our word, verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God, through the cross, that's again that emblem of death, by it having put to death the enmity. And then he, out of nowhere, seemingly just brings in this verse. 
Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to those who were far away. That would be the Jews, or I'm sorry, the Gentiles, peace to those who were far away, and preached peace to those who were near. That would be the Jews. And he's bringing them together. Verse 14, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. What we see is just three little elements here. Three little elements. He made, that's the divine plan. Christ said, I will build my church. And he came in and he instituted it. He created this church. And that's actually the word, that's what the word means. He made, it just means to create. And it's a new man, he says, new in kind. It's not like the old one, it's completely different. New in kind, it's something something else, something different. It's a new entity. And then he also, in this passage, he reconciled. And then he preached. And notice those three things. He, he made, which is the divine plan. He reconciled, which is the divine work, which Christ did on the cross. And then he preached, and that's the divine method. It's to preach. It's through that message that he brings people together. That message of peace to those who are far off and to those who are, who are near. And he brings them together into one new person. Now, we have, to, uh, we have to focus on this concept of reconciliation, though. What does this mean? Well, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones had a, has a good little clip. And there's, he says there's five elements to this word of reconciliation. Number one, it means, and this is just the simple definition, it just simply means to move, to, to bring someone or to change someone from hostility to friendliness, to friendship. So move someone from hostility. They're no longer fighting, but they're friends. They have a friendly relationship. Notice, number two, it's not just doing away with the animosity or the estrangement that's one thing. He broke down those walls and, and we could just, just not be mad at them anymore. But no, it's, it's more than that. But it's bringing the two together again. Bringing the two together. It's reunited. It's reconnecting. And then number three, we see that it is, a, it is completeness. He was just pointing out this word, reconciled. It is in a... A past tense form. It's completed. It's completed action. But it's not just in, it's completed in the past. That's not the idea. It's completed in, it's, it's fulfilled. Everything that's needed is already done. It's not, uh, it's not an action, uh, or, or it's done in action. It's not, not just a compromise. It's something that has been complete. It's, it's full and total. It's been done. It's not just a, halfway peace or some kind of something that will not last and then number four martin lloyd jones points out that it's an aorist active subjunctive and the kata now that that just warms your heart doesn't it it speaks a whole lot to you here's what he means by that it is not that the two sides come together as it were voluntarily that's not the idea to reconcile it's not just a voluntary thing. It is one, one bringing the other into position of complete amity and accord. It's not a voluntary, okay, let's agree to disagree or agree to come together. No, it's one saying you will be coming together. It's like when my kids are arguing and I'm going to settle the issue now. So I step in as a parent and I say, you will not do this. And you have to hug and tell each other that you're sorry. You've had to do that too. And then number five, um, there's, a, there's a restoration. Now, you need to follow this. There's a restoration of something that was there before. Reconciliation, it's, it's something that was there before. This is something that you, you can't be reconciled when you've never been together before. But there was that something there before, and the idea was being brought together. Um, and since the fall, man has been estranged from God, but now through the work of Christ has been brought back. He has made reconciliation. That's the idea. It's not that just, we're just not 
enemies anymore, but no, we're friends. And we're back together. And there's a, there's a relationship there that's tight. And it's a, it's, everything has been done for it. It's not something else that needs to be done. And it wasn't done on a voluntary basis. It was done by force. You will come together. And he's bringing his people together. He's bringing people to God himself. That's the idea of reconciliation. And then uh, the peace uh, or the the preaching in verse 17, uh, talking about that message that we have and that divine method is the word of God and preaching is so important. And he's taking this as a just a clip from the Old Testament from Isaiah. And uh, he's borrowing this idea because that's exactly what Christ did. He, he allowed the Jews and Gentiles to come together by preaching peace. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now, look at the Trinity at work there. Through him, that's Christ... Through his work, what he has done on the cross, we, we both have our access in one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. We have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in this one verse. All of the blessings, all of the actions, all of the work of the Trinity is, is, is harmonious. They come together for one purpose, that's to bring his people together. It's the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, and bringing them to the Father and bringing us all together and making us one. Um, and Christ said that he would build his church, and he is building that church. It's an amazing concept. Let's look at verses 19 to 22, though. Actually, before we get into that, let me point out. Here's some things that the church is not. The church is not just... Paul's not just saying he, he freed, freed the Jews to, to start their own religion. That's not at all what happened at that time. He didn't just... Uh, abolish this Jewish thing so that the, the Jews can come up with a new religion that's more modern, that, that fits our culture more, or fits the Roman culture more. No, not at all. That's not, that's not at all it. I don't think the Jews would have ever given away their history like that. Uh, it's not Gentiles becoming Jews. He didn't just stretch out that wall to incorporate all the Gentiles. No, that wall was abolished. He did away with that wall. And it's not, uh, it's not bringing the, the best of Judaism and the best of the, the Gentile religions together to make a religion. That's not it, That's not it either. And it's not a, a spiritual Israel. He's not, he's not just, okay, they, they spiritualized it and we're just... The church is now spiritual Israel and all those blessings come to the church. And Israel is no longer... And uh, that's not what is said here. He brings them together and makes them a new man, a new institution, a new of a different kind. And uh, bringing the two together, but it's a it's a it's something that wasn't there before that is totally different, totally new. And uh, sometimes we uh, we see the- theologians kind of. Holding to that, that Israel or the church is just Israel. And um, I see a distinction here. In fact, turn over to chapter 1, verse 10. Let me start at verse 9. And he he made known to us the mystery of his will, Ephesians 1, 9. A mystery of his will according to the kind intentions of his purpose in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. What is he talking about? It's a new administration, a new denominate or new um, dispensation. And it's suitable, it's suitable for the end of time. It's to accomplish God's purposes we're the end of time. And the church fulfills that. It's not just dragging over Israel and, and restructuring Israel. No, Israel is no longer an entity. And the church is. It's not spiritual Israel. Do you see yourself as a... Just, are we just individual disciples? Or are we together? Are we united as a church? Do we have that sense of community that 
oneness that results from the work of Christ, that preaching peace to those who are far and to those who are near, bringing us together within the Trinity, the whole work of the Trinity. Do we see that just by way of application? We have to ask ourselves that question. As a church, do we have that? Do we... uh, or we just see ourselves as a bunch of individuals that happen to come and hear the same guy preach week in, week out. We, we are one body. And it's the result of Christ working in his church and accomplishing this reconciliation with God and man and man to man. And we can't have peace. Positionally, we already have that. If you are a believer, you are in the body of Christ. Now, I know practically, sometimes we just plain can't get along. (laughs) And it's still that residing sin. That flesh wants to flare up sometimes. Those desires we we just nail down with tent pegs. And I'm going to keep this desire. I'm going to hang on to this desire. This is something I want. And nobody's going to stop me. And we see that those desires of what Paul or James says, uh, that's the cause of your conflict. Sometimes that sin still roots and still works and splits and divides the body of Christ. That should never be. Christ broke down those walls. He paid that penalty for sin. So sin should no longer be a problem within his church. And he created a new institution bringing us all together. Look at verse 19 to 22. Here He gives us the reason why, but he gives us some an illustration of this element as well. He brought... He, uh, he, built and dwe- uh, he built a dwelling place for himself. Why did he do this? Well, to build a dwelling place for himself. That's what he's done. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You've been brought together. You are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. That's the kingdom element of this. And you are God's household. That's another illustration. The household of God, the family of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, or the cornerstone in whom, you, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. And that's another illustration. So we see three illustrations here. The unity of the kingdom, the structure of a house, the building of a house, and then the the sanctity of a temple. And all three of these really could could sum up uh, unity of the church, and that's the way the church should function. But there's also some distinctions, some differences here. The unity of the kingdom. We are unified with all the saints. For 2,000 years, God has been plucking men and women out from the world and bringing them and placing them in the body of Christ, into the saints. And we are, we are His kingdom. We have dual citizenship. We have a, a new king that we serve. We have new laws that we adhere to. This law of love. We have new value system. We think differently in this kingdom. So it's like a different culture. Now, it's not a different culture because it transcends all cultures. There's a unity within this kingdom. And then number two, you see that the structure of this house, this illustration that Paul uses. And I like this. This is... This is so good. It's God's household having been built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets. And that's what we saw in the book of Acts, that this foundation was laid. And the, it's not just the apostles and prophets, but it was their teaching, their, their proclaiming of the message that things were built But nonetheless, the foundation was laid and the church has been laid upon a foundation. You can't lay a foundation upon another foundation and upon another foundation. No, the foundation was laid one time, and that was apostles and prophets. Christ brought them together and discipled them, and they went out, and the church was established upon their preaching, upon their teaching. And Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the cornerstone was cut and shaped just for the the structure of the building. Now, it, it held weight... 
but it also formed the building. The building was formed around this, this cornerstone. And that's exactly the picture that Paul is trying to paint. In whom the building, being fitted together, is growing. So God is plucking one brick off the shelf, another brick off the shelf, and he's building this house, his house. Jesus Christ, it's his cornerstone. It has a foundation of the apostles and prophets, and it's, it's a structure. And by now, it's an edifice. This is the body of Christ. He said, I will build my church. And it is an edifice. It is established. And it is functioning today. It says, in whom the whole building being fitted together. That's one at a time. Now, there's diversity, but there's also unity. Each brick might be different when they're put on, but there's there's diversity, but there's also, also a unity. And it's growing. Buildings don't grow, they're built. But he changes the metaphor a little bit there. And it's growing into a, a temple. So therefore the, the illustration does change. It's a temple now. Why is it a temple? Because it, it will be the dwelling place of God himself. In whom you also are being built together. So that's that same idea. Being built together, being pulled together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So we have the, the temple illustration. And it stresses the need for holiness in God's church. Holiness. So we have the, the kingdom, the citizenship, the, the, the house, the structure, and the sanctity of a, of a temple. Now, I just want to remind you of the main point again. The purpose. The power of God brought peace by abolishing the Jewish religious system through the death of Christ and established a new institution which includes every race and it's to reveal his presence among men. Really to do his work, in fact, if we want to keep with that verse 10. Now, the question then is how are we doing? How are we doing? Is this by way of application sometimes we we build more walls and we just exclude people and we we do we do um so much to to push each other off and instead of pull each other in and building together loving one another coming together as a community christ tore down those walls of that wall of petition he created a new institution and he is building it For his dwelling, he is dwelling this. So how can we apply this? Um, You see the application, but let me go beyond that. Let me go beyond that. Do we, are we being loving? Do we love one another like we should? Like a body? Like an institution? Or are we just, well, I'm a disciple of Christ and I'll go and listen to him preach and I'll go home and I'll never speak to anybody else. Or do we come in and understand that we're part of a whole here? We're, we belong together. We will not do so well functioning as mavericks, independent, just out there. No, we belong in a church. A child belongs in a family. If you are a child of God, you belong in a family. So the question is, are you, are you loving? We need to be more loving. We need to... Number two is we need to edify. We need to build up one another. Build up and, and uh, be positive toward one another. Encourage one another. We need to, number three is just we need to forgive one another. How do we have this peace in the church? Well, we forgive. It's not, a, it's not free from conflict. There's going to be conflict, but we forgive one another. We forgive and we move on. We don't count the number of times the person has done this event or done this thing. We move on. We forgive. Sin must be dealt with. And then number four, just by way of application, is we need to be gracious. We need to be gracious toward one another. Within a family, these are the things that I'm looking for. Within my family, I want my kids to be loving. I want them to be edifying one another. I want them to use this, this forgiveness element 
They need to use that. When sin is there, it needs to be dealt with and forgiven. And then I want them to be gracious to one another. That's what it means to be a community. Now there's more things, and Paul's going to address those in chapter 4 and 5. We are at war, folks. Here in America, we are fighting a war across the continents. But we're also fighting a cultural war here in America. And there's not going to be peace. It's, it's just one of those wars. It's just not going to be won. In fact, it seems that we've already lost. But that's not the war that really matters. The war that really matters is the spiritual war. Um, and we have the message of peace. We can go out and through this message reconcile man to God, taking care of sin, and then man to man. You know that? We can do that. We need to illustrate that first within the church, this peace that we preach, but we can, we can do that. By way of just conclusion, man does not have to go to war. Man does not have to continuously be fighting. I don't think that we will have peace here on this earth until Christ comes and establishes it. But you know what? Within the church, we can have peace. We have a message of peace, but we, within this church, can be living that message out. And we should be within our church. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this word that you have given us today. Thank you, Lord, for the work of Christ on the cross and what he has done to establish this peace. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit working within our heart, producing peace as a fruit. And, Lord, we thank you for yourself, God the Father, and your work, your planning and establishing all of these things so that we can be reconciled to you. And Lord, you have given us your nature. You have, you have opened yourselves up to us that we can become together with you. And Lord, we thank you for that. I pray that we would go out this week and preach the message of peace. And Lord, within these four walls, within our community, I pray that we would demonstrate love and edify one another, forgive one another when is necessary, and just be gracious to one another, knowing that sin will never be completely eradicated. But Lord, we strive for peace. We thank you for being a God of peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.